The corpus carve-out is its corpus, right? So the initial gift to the trust, whether or not that's the settlement sum or a gift by the initial set law of a million. But then it goes on to say, but it's not corpus if it had have been received by an Australian resident beneficiary and it would have been income at the time. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 408 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, we spoke about applying Section 99B ITAA 1936. In this episode, let's talk about the Section 99B carve-outs. Here are Bradley Murphy and Darren Casserole of Murphy Tax in Sydney. Go to carve-outs. They cause the most, <laughs> there's a massive divide between what we say corpus is, what the client says corpus is, and what the <laughs> <says> corpus is. <laughs> yeah, so the, the corpus, the, the question of what is corpus, that is the biggest problem for you when you have a foreign trust problem, correct? It's the problem for everyone. And as you know, Brad mentioned before, it's absolutely key that if there's a foreign trust, it's got accurate records because working out what is corpus? So the corpus carve-out is its corpus, right? So the initial gift to the trust, whether or not that's the settlement sum or a gift by the initial set law of a million, but then it goes on to say, but it's not corpus if it had have been received by an Australian resident beneficiary and it would have been income at the time. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of starts to get a bit tricky then around dividend reinvestments and accumulations because, if you were an Australian resident, you'd pay income tax on the value of the dividend reinvestment, but you'd get recognition in the cost base, right, for the share. <laughs> but are they saying you're denied the corpus in that scenario, right, because the value of the trust is going up? So it becomes quite tricky. The problem is that you didn't pay tax on the dividend reinvestment. So if it was in Australia, you know, if you held a share and it paid you a dividend and you reinvested it, you would have paid tax on that dividend and the problem is that, you know, if you never paid tax on those dividend reinvestments, then you have to face the music at the end. Whereas if you declared these dividends going through, then it probably does qualify as corpus. Well, this is where it gets interesting when you're talking around. It's pretty clear when you're talking about like house goes into a private family trust. But when you're talking retirement plans, for example, yes. and there's employee, employer-sponsored contributions, there's performance over time. So one of the big questions is, well, what happens if you change funds or you roll over from one pension fund to another fund? What happens to the initial accumulated gains in fund one? So you go from employer-sponsored fund to a private fund. If you roll over the million dollars to the new private fund, do you have to unpack that balance or is that a new gift to a new foreign trust because your old foreign trust doesn't exist anymore? And doesn't matter if that happens when you're non-resident versus resident. Is there a different treatment <laughs> yeah. if the rollover to the new trust happens while you're non-resident versus an Australian resident? You know, is there a different corpus question in those examples? 
it's a subjective clause, I think, and the way it's been you know, interpreted by the tax office and by practitioners is always subjective because there's no definition of corpus under the Tax Act, right? It's common law, it's sort of the ordinary meaning of the word, right? And I think um, there's a couple of cases like Campbell gave a sort of definition of what corpus was and there's a few other cases too, but that's always the biggest issue as well. And then even if you can identify the corpus, proving to the commissioner and having records to substantiate that is another issue. If the trust has brought and sold assets over the journey, so it's, you know, sold a property or sold some shares and reinvested that, you know, you need that record keeping in the accounts to really back up that capital corpus amount. And so what have you argued so far when there was this rollover? Did you come to a solution or is that a question in the room that you would have had to come to some answer with respect to your clients does it really depend on the details or can you say in general it's all the total of employer contributions plus personal contributions that is your corpus something like that for these pension plans yeah the latter is certainly established the contributions by the employee and the employer are certainly corpus that's clear i guess what we see a lot is a bit more controversial is you're rolling over a 401k plan to a personal ira plan And that rollover happens, you know, say you left your job 10 years ago from employment and the fund's growing, you know, a million dollars in that 10-year period. You do a rollover to an IRA pre-coming back to Australia. Is the corpus the value of the rollover before you come to Australia or is it restricted to the contributions by the employee and employer? I think there's been some, certainly some private rulings out there to back up that it's the rollover transfer value. But um, it does depend on the facts, for sure. And yeah, that's certainly not advice on that last point. I think that <laughs> very much is a very fact-by-fact-based case. Come and talk to us. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we covered corpus in a pension fund, and that's probably the tricky bit. Corpus in a private trust is probably easy if the bookkeeping is done properly. There it probably comes down to, do you have clean books or don't you have clean books? If you don't have clean books, then it's very difficult to prove what corpus is. And if you have clean books, then it's probably very straightforward to show what corpus is. You basically just look in the balance sheet, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was the first carve-out, corpus. The next carve-out, is a carve-out in this list? Is transfer trust a carve-out? I assume not. I assume transfer trust is a completely different train. We are on the Section 99B train and transfer trust is a different train, correct? Yes and no. I think if you have a transfer or trust, it's just subject to accruals taxation, right? So you're getting taxed anyway on the income of that. I think there's a potential issue if that transfer or trust was to come back and become an Australian resident trust. And if there was any market value step up on its assets, then maybe those amounts would be subject to, potentially subject to 99B. But that's like the apex of complexity, those. <laughs> yes. But I can imagine transfer trust doesn't face 99B really because a transfer trust is basically already treated like a resident trust because well, you basically I mean. look already through. subject to accruals, right, already because um, you admit that in the box when you say, did you transfer assets to a foreign trust? Yes. <laughs> so the moment you tick, did you transfer assets to a foreign trust, you basically have a transfer trust. Yeah, so it's exactly what it is, right? Australian residents transferring value to an offshore trust or company. And then, yeah, the provisions, I think it's 6 AAA, right, just brings in the income and gains of that trust to you that just sheets home to the transferor under the accruals basis. 
Sorry. Yes. And I think it's not just did you transfer assets to a foreign trust, it's also did you provide services to a foreign trust? Because I think when you provide services, you also trigger the transfer trust rules, correct? Yeah, it's anything yeah. really of value, right? It's correct. So don't do the books for your foreign trust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least don't charge for them anyway. So that means transfer trust is a completely different story. That's not our second carve-out. So what is our second carve-out? Yes, yeah, so carve-out number two is an amount that's effectively would not be taxable to an Australian resident beneficiary. So even though it's been you know accrued by the, the foreign trust, that amount is not actually taxable under Australian law to that Australian beneficiary in any event. So the example there would be like a pre-CGT reserve, for example. So the sale of a pre-1985 asset would be normally carved out from 99B. Lottery winnings, which are tax-free in Australia? Yep, correct. Yep. So if it's not taxable under Australian domestic law, then there should be a carve-out under 99B. Yeah. So we had number one was corpus. Number two is not taxable in Australia anyway. And number three? Nine. Nane. Nane. Okay. What is the difference between not taxable in Australia and Nane? Well, so exactly that, right? So not taxable would be your pre-CGT asset. It's just completely outside of the tax system. But non-assessable, non-exempt is amounts that are recognised as having like a character, but just classified as non-taxable. Well, non-assessable monies. <laughs> Do we really need this distinction between well, I think inane and exempt and yeah, know, unassessable? The, and the battleground's always on corpus. Nearly every yeah. single argument, you know, because things like conduit foreign income, you usually have a unit trust and things that are clearly you're able to identify and there'll be a managed fund statement, et cetera, et cetera. These later carve-outs, these minor ones, you know, whether or not the trustee, you know, whether or not it's been included somewhere else in Division 6 or whether or not the trustee would be subject to tax on it, they're all sort of minor carve-outs because the big one is if you go back to the start and you say these foreign trusts are pregnant with accumulated income and gains and the main carve-out is always going to be the corpus battleground. And what what is it? Because for companies, we have the conduit foreign income, especially, sorry, CFC rules, controlled foreign company rules. So we really pick up on that income as we go. But in a trust, we don't pick up on it unless it qualifies as a transfer trust. But let's assume it doesn't. Then we don't pick up on it. And so we really have to pick it up when it comes to Australia under 99B. Yeah. And it's, yeah, when you think about the reporting that goes behind why 99B is in place, you look at jurisdictions where, you, you know, Cook Islands, you know, New Zealand, there's no Australian tie to regulation for reporting and, you know, with these entities, not like Companies House or anything. You know, if you've got some formal government monitoring you know singapore has like i said companies house the uk's got company we've got asic it's all pretty easy to find out you know from the government's point of view if they want to find out something about you know australian ownership of entities overseas and if they're companies you can find out so um, it's where you hit the you know the seychelles and the cook islands and you know these other pockets of secrecy that still remain so you can only sort of assess on receipt can't you I was just thinking what these rules are called. I think they are called common reporting rules. Common reporting rules. Yeah, common reporting rules. And FATCA. Yeah, and FATCA, yeah. But they probably, yeah, you're right. They probably don't pick up trusts as well as they pick up companies or bank accounts. Yeah. 
Good. So the name, was that the second carve-out together with the now taxable in Australia or was that already the third carve-out? I mean, that was part of number two, the second carve-out. The third carve-out is any tax paid overseas by the trustee or overseas beneficiary. So you get a tax credit in Australia for the foreign taxes paid effectively. Okay, so that means the income still comes into the Australian tax return, but then you receive a foreign tax income tax offset to FITO. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is you know, relatively straightforward to apply that carve out. Obviously, normally, if you've got records of foreign tax paid by the trustee or the beneficiary, there'll be a tax credit available in Australia for the beneficiary. But this foreign tax is usually very, very low or non-existent. So it only... <laughs> yes. To your point before, yeah, it's coming out of not Singapore or the BVI. Obviously, it's very low. Sometimes yeah. no tax coming out of these countries. Yeah. And it's not really a carve out at such. Sorry for splitting hairs here. It's not really a carve out because the income still comes into the Australian tax return. It's more you get a carrot with the stick. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's a bit misleading. It's not really an exclusion. <laughs> it's, yes. Yeah. You, and you yeah. do see it sometimes where you've got. The trust itself, it hasn't paid any tax for whatever local jurisdiction rules, but maybe the beneficiary has filed a tax return in a foreign country and, and has declared some of that income. You know, so the beneficiary still gets the distribution of the untaxed amount from the trust and it's potentially in 99B. Um, what we're saying is that if the beneficiary is also paid, potentially declared and paid tax somewhere else, yeah, they get credit for that. I think in the US, usually with their trusts, some of their trusts don't pay a lot of tax, but their beneficiaries file K-1s, you know, they get their K-1s and, you know, pay some tax. So what it might fall within 99B, but then, yeah, there's got to be a mechanism available to that beneficiary so they're not paying double double tax. So those are the three carve-outs? Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so as, then- as Darren said, the main one is certainly the corpus one is where practitioners spend most of their time. One final point is that Australia is not the only jurisdiction with brutal rules, like punitive rules on local beneficiaries receiving distributions from foreign trusts. The UK, if you think 99B is bad, the UK has got a system that's even worse. <laughs> you know, so for all our UK listeners, if you're, if you're thinking about getting a distribution from a non-resident trust, you might want to think twice about that um, because they essentially go all the way back to the inception of the trust and create income and capital pools and then it's essentially you know sheet home the entire lot to the to the beneficiary in the UK if they receive it so it's it's absolutely brutal but anyway that's not strictly 99b <laughs> yeah it's always good to see that somebody's worse off than oneself well i think that's yeah. the, that's that's the silver lining is that this isn't the worst provision out there for foreign trusts okay yeah, yeah it's all relative isn't it it's all relative Maybe like the closing comment would just be, you know, we talked at the start around the beneficiaries themselves being foreign and the trust foreign and having accumulations happen and then being penalised if the beneficiaries were to come to Australia. One of the often mooted sort of points around this is, well, can you just make the foreign trust an Australian resident trust to avoid 99B? And I guess the answer is, well, it depends, A, uh, what's in the trust and B, where is the trust? Because, you know, there's treaty-based countries, you know, and residency tiebreaker tests. So, you know, it may be one effort to onboard a foreign trust to Australia to try and circumvent 99B, but what happens if the treaty applies and takes it back out? <laughs> yeah. You know, because control and management is still in a foreign country, for example. You know, so you, you might 
get an Australian resident trustee to onboard the, the trust, but if all the key decision-makings are still happening in a treaty country, then you might not have solved any problems by bringing the trust on board. And then obviously that trust rule that we talked about earlier with the market value step up of all the assets for CGP purposes, that step up may be caught in any event under 99B. Before we talk about a different topic around Section 99B, here's a quick word from our sponsor DocuSign. Last year, our accounting firm was hacked. Okay, I'm going to admit it. My password was password. I thought about going back to old school paperwork, but then I heard about DocuSign. It has the highest global security standards with round-the-clock activity tracking, keeping digital agreements confidential. So now we're on DocuSign, and no one's cracking my password. And no, it's not one, two, three, four. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. In the next episodes about Section 99B, we will go, among other things, we will go through different scenarios and then look at how those scenarios are taxed in the hands of resident and foreign beneficiaries, depending on whether the trust is a resident or foreign trust. And as we discuss these scenarios in preparation of this next interview, and as we are planning how to make it as clear as possible for you, Bradley and Darren already share some very helpful insights that I'm very keen to share with you here. In the examples I sent you, I listed a trust moving from foreign to resident and what happens. I think I will add another example where a resident trust moves to be a foreign trust and what happens. I too. That's, that's a great question. That's, <laughs> that's a nasty one too. Nasty. Yeah, we, we should chat on that next time actually because that yeah. is a, a lot yeah. of people miss. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say like, yeah, because basically if an Australian trust, right, uh, becomes a non-resident trust and there's an exit tax at that point at DM disposal based on the market value of the assets in the trust at that time. And I guess normally, if you have an Australian corporate trustee of the trust, it's normally going to remain an Australian trust. So it's normally where there's two or an individual trustee and the individual goes overseas and becomes non-resident. At that time, the trust itself will become a non-resident trust. And unlike the individual exit charge, which you can defer, there's no option for the trust. It's basically at that time, the exit event happens based on the market value of the assets in in that trust, which um, yeah can be a bit of a disaster, to be frank. So really important planning point that one, and is um, I too is a capital gains event which we can chat about perhaps next time in some more detail. Yeah, I mean the, the way around that is by putting in an Australian corporate trustee to keep the trust Australian effectively uh, with a Australian director on the company in Australia. I see. And it doesn't matter where the CMC is, as long as the corporate trustee is an Australian company that will keep the trust Australian. Yeah, normally. Yeah. Corporate yeah. residencies, firstly, where is the company incorporated? Yeah, especially here. Yeah. So CMC tends to bring the company into Australia, but CMC tends not to take it out of Australia if it's an Australian corporate trustee. Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, we can chat about CMAC as well on another session. That's another good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I See, always Darren's say CMC, but you say CMAC. Is the common acronym CMAC rather than CMC? Oh, I think they could both be used. Sorry. I mean, we tend to use CMAC, but I'm sure yeah. other advisors use CMC as well. I'm Just, sure everyone knows what we're talking about either way, CMC or CMAC. Both yeah. are important issues to, to think about. And there's a CFC rules overlaying the CMAC rules too. So um, good topics, those ones.
Bradley Murphy and Darren Kasserl of Murphy Tax in Sydney. So the big carve out is Corpus. That is the big question. To escape from 99B, Corpus is your best way out. The other one is Nain or Nane, Nain. If your income is Nain in Australia, so non-accessible, non-exempt income, then Section 99B can't hurt you either. In the next episode, episode 409, let's step aside for a moment and look at the assessment of trustees. We always mention the assessment of the trustee as an option when things go wrong, but what does that actually mean when the trustee gets assessed? That is what Bradley Murphy and Darren Castle will cover with you in the next episode. And then in the episode after that, episode 410, Bradley and Darren will go through six questions with you about foreign trusts and foreign companies. They will talk about transfer trusts, convert foreign income, the concept of CFC versus CMAC, how a bear trust is not affected by Section 99B, and a few other things. And that will already bring us to the end for this year. And then next year, we will cover various scenarios for foreign trust, six scenarios to be exact. For example, a resident trust becoming a foreign trust, and even more relevant, a foreign trust becoming a resident trust among other scenarios. Then we will cover the change in amendment periods due to the finalized 2015 regulations. Spoiler alert, if in doubt, assume an amendment period for four years. The 2015 regulations move more and more taxpayers to a four-year amendment period. Then after that, we will do a pipeline walkthrough with a medium-sized accounting practice who has a couple of million dollars in turnover, actually more than a couple of million of dollars in turnover, so not a small one. And then we will look at FYI again together with a real-life accountant who loves FYI to give you another perspective after I spoke quite negatively about it. Then we will look at employee share schemes with Andrew Henshaw. And after that, it starts to become more hazy. But all this is in the pipeline at the moment for next year with more to come. So in the next episode, episode 409, we will look at the assessment of trustees with Bradley Murphy and Darren Catherall of Murphy Tax in Sydney. What does it actually mean to assess the trustee? Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.